Tuesday, April 15, 1947. It's a damp, overcast tax day. The smells of hot dogs, pretzels, popcorn, knishes, and stale beer are in the air. We're at Ebbets Field in the neighborhood of Flatbush in Brooklyn, New York, for a 1 p.m. opening day National League baseball game between the visiting Boston Braves and our hometown Brooklyn Dodgers. Right before the season, manager Leo DeRocher was suspended for the entire year by the offices of Major League Baseball for conduct detrimental to the team. At the last minute, Bert Schotten, a calm, steady presence, was called in to take the helm. The bums are expected to contend this year, and fans are excited. The old redhead Red Barber is up in the press booth calling the action on radio for the Columbia Broadcasting System. All of the Ebbets Field celebrities are here. There's the Dodgers Symphony, Hilda Chester, the Cowbell Lady, Gladys Gooding is on the organ. And like Brooklynite writer Pete Hamill once said, the rough democracy of the upper deck is filling up with restless natives. There's 26,623 total in attendance, men and women and children with all kinds of faces, donning Dodgers caps, windbreakers, flannel jackets, letterman sweaters, sports coats and suits. They're Italian, African-American, Jewish, Irish, Polish, Norwegian. It's the proverbial melting pot come to life. At 12.45 p.m., the Dodgers begin to trot out of the clubhouse as second baseman Eddie Stanky, center fielder Pete Reeser, catcher Bruce Edwards, and pitcher Joe Hatton run out. Hatton warms up as the time ticks towards 12.50, and one by one, the rest of the Dodgers come out, taking their positions for infield warm-ups. Right field, Dixie Walker. Left field, Gene Hermansky. Third baseman, Spider Jorgensen. Shortstop, Pee Wee Reese. Finally, the fans begin to buzz as the team's new acquisition from Montreal of the International League jogs out to first base. He was born in Cairo, Georgia, the youngest son of a sharecropper that grew into a four-sport letterman at UCLA and a second lieutenant in the Army during World War II. His name is Jack Roosevelt Robinson, and he's the first African-American to play in the major leagues since Moses Fleetwood Walker in 1884. He casually tosses his teammates infield practice until 1.01 p.m. when home plate umpire Babe Pinnell signals for the start of the game.
Robinson smooths the dirt in a playing path by first base and sets himself. Knees bent, slightly crouched, with his oversized first baseman's mitt on his left hand on the ground and open. Boston shortstop, Dick Culler, digs in as Brooklyn lefty Joe Hatton winds and delivers the pitch. Culler swings and slaps the ground ball towards third base. He digs out of the batter's box as Spider Jorgensen charges in to his right and fields the ball on a high hop, going slightly off balance towards first base. Robinson, right foot on the bag, stretches as far as he can, catching Jorgensen's throw and getting Culler out by a step. And just like that, a 50-year-old gentleman's agreement between changing owners and the commissioner's office that had barred any dark-skinned men from playing in the league was dead. It died here in Flatbush at 1 p.m. on a Tuesday afternoon in April, 1947, as 26,000 onlookers watched and wildly cheered. Later, in the bottom of the seventh inning, after an error while batting allowed him to reach second base, Jackie Robinson scored the Dodgers' fifth run of the game on a double from Pete Reeser, and the Dodgers would win 5-3. Although Jackie Robinson was the subject of taunts, beanball spikes and scuffles with opposing players and fans all season, he had the faith of African Americans all over the country and Brooklyn Dodger fans in New York, as well as the quickly earned support of his teammates to back him. Robinson would go on to hit 297 with 125 runs scored, 48 extra base hits, and lead the league with 29 stolen bases en route to winning the Rookie of the Year as the Brooklyn Dodgers went 94 and 60, finishing in first place and winning the National League pennant. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 78. My name is James Scully. Today on Breaking Walls, in honor of Major League Baseball's opening day, we'll present stories, recollections, and in-game sounds from some of baseball's most memorable moments and people. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, thank you. Welcome to the show. You can find this show on iTunes and everywhere that you get your podcasts or at thewallbreakers.com. Our opening theme today is courtesy of Woodrow Buddy Johnson and Count Basie with their 1949 hit, Did You See Jackie Robinson Hit That Ball? If you've been enjoying Breaking Walls, especially on iTunes, scroll down and give us a quick rating. It'll really help more people discover this show. You can also support the show and unlock juicy bonus content and other fun extras at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Yankee fans start to talk it up. Cup fans are yelling for Dizzy to hold him. Runner on first, ready to go with the pitch. Dizzy stretches. And the saddest game I believe I ever lost, and the toughest game I ever lost, I hurt my arm in between 34 and 38. 
and I was sold to the Chicago Cubs for $185,000 in four ball players and with my so arm. And we won the pennant that year, and I was pitching the second game against the New York Yankees. And uh, in the eighth inning, I had him beat three to two. Who got the hit to start this eighth inning? Was fourth to second. Garcetti is the man at bat. Ball three, strike two, two men down, and Hogan first base. Garcetti came up the plate and hit a three and two pitch into the left field seats for a home run and beat me four to three. Goes the rubber, runner on first can go with the pitch on a three and two with two down. There he goes. Here's the pitch. There goes the ball for a hell of a high, high, high long drive out in the left field stand for a home run. Garcetti hits a home run out into the left field stand and the score has now changed complexion. It's the Yankees four and the Cubs three. Two runs coming in, and that's only hit number five off the pitching of me. A well hit ball. He's been aiming for that all afternoon. Well, I didn't have a thing on the ball. It was a lot of difference throwing that nothing ball up there in 38, and it was that far ball in 34. I was taken out of the ball game, and Gabby Hart was our manager that year. I uh, went over to the dugout, and I really felt sad. And the fans in the Chicago ballpark, something like 45,000 people, stood up and cheered as I left the mound. And uh, when I started going to the dugout, you could hear the pin drop. I finally went in on into the clubhouse, and the fellow I saw up there first was a grand old man of baseball, Connie Mack. He put his arms around my shoulder, and I sort of felt a little better. He says, son, he says, you pitched a great ball game out there with what you had to, on the ball. He says, in one game, I'd like to see you one, although it was against our American League Club. They play this game in parks and playgrounds, on side streets and in schoolyards, in open fields and in alleyways. Today, Major League Baseball players come from the United States, Cuba, Panama, Japan, Mexico, Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, and the Netherlands. The National League, in operation since 1876, is the oldest major American sports league in existence. That first National League season was won by the Chicago White Stockings, who later changed their names to the Colts, then the Orphans, and finally the Cubs. The American League has been in business since 1901. Oddly enough, the American League's first champion was also known as the Chicago White Sox, a name that they still use today. They played the first World Series in 1903 when the Boston Americans, led by Cy Young, beat the Pittsburgh Pirates, who are led by Hannes Wagner. Since that time, it has been played every year but two, in 1904 due to protest, and in 1994 when baseball was on strike. Dizzy Dean was a member of the famed Gas House Gang St. Louis Cardinals, a team that won the 1934 World Series. In the 1930s, the National League's two perennial contenders were the Cardinals and the New York Giants. Those games with the Giants were something. This is just a short story, and it's about that old favorite of mine, Pepper Martin. You know, we did have some great games with the Giants, and I guess one of the toughest hitters I ever faced was the manager of the ball club, Bill Terry. I always liked to pitch against Bill, even if he did make it kind of rough for me. One day I had him two strikes and nothing real quick. I tried to sneak the next one through there, and Terry hit it right back through the box. A mile a minute. Brother, he liked to took a leg off old Dizzy's. And Pepper Martin was playing third base for us then, and while I was getting ready to pitch to the next hitter, 
Pepper walks over to the mound, and, and he was really a grinning. He put up his hands so nobody else could hear it, and he says, real serious, Jerome, I don't believe you're playing Terry deep enough. <laughs> Dean had a Hall of Fame career. In a three-year stretch between 1934 and 36, he won 78 and lost only 32. He also pitched 81 complete games, had 12 shutouts, and 23 saves in relief. Even with Dean's brilliance, the Cardinals won only one World Series before arm troubles derailed his career. He then went into broadcasting, first in radio and then television, from 1941 to 1965. Look sharp, feel sharp, be sharp. Use Gillette Blue Blades with the sharpest edges ever honed. Gillette's cavalcade of sports is on the air. Good afternoon, baseball fans everywhere. This is Red Barber with Mel Allen at Yankee Stadium in New York, greeting you for the Gillette Safety Razor Company. One of the uh, strongest, earliest memories I ever have is as a boy in Central Florida, listening to the radio in the living room of a classmate of mine, and this would be 1924, at one of the stations that he would bring in through the hips of dining and the squealing and the twisting and turning of dials and knobs, etc. It wasn't an easy thing to listen to radio in those days. You didn't have much foot room because you had so many batteries around on the floor. All radio was run off batteries in those days, and you had recharges for batteries, and you had red lights on the recharge, and it was almost like a, setting up a laboratory the way Merrill Roberts had it. But we used to bring in KDKA. Then you'd bring in WSB in Atlanta. My gracious, what a triumph it would be if we could hear Kansas City or hear a station in Chicago. I think that the young people today who just pick up a transistor radio and the only problem is which one of a number of local stations to tune into have no idea of the excitement that hit this country when radio was young. did not announce him until his pregame clubhouse meeting. He is Big Don Newcomb, 6'5", 230 pounds. Finishing his rookie year. In fact, he was not even with the Dodgers the first month of the pennant campaign. The first baseball game to be broadcast took place on August 5, 1921. KDKA announcer Harold Arlen set up a transmitter for Westinghouse at Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. That day, Pirates defeated the Philadelphia Phillies 8 to 5. WJZ broadcast the first World Series game that autumn. In 1970, longtime New York Daily News columnist Ben Gross recalled the events surrounding Game One of the 1921 World Series. Tommy Cowan broadcast the first World Series game. It was on October the 5th, 1921. They put a man in a box at the polo grounds with an ordinary telephone, and he relayed the game to Tommy play by play. Tommy repeated it on the microphone. And do you know that when the game was over, Tommy didn't even know who had won? the Giants or the Yankees? Graham McNamee's coverage of the 1925 World Series generated over 50,000 fan mail letters addressed to the announcer. Ted Husing would begin broadcasting the World Series for CBS in 1929, until 1935 when he was barred by Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis for criticizing umpires too heavily. That year, Red Barber took over. When you were the broadcaster the microphone, you were the entire show, and you just tried to talk about what you saw. And one of the exciting things in the early days was the contest that never seemed to end between Graham McNamee and Ted Husey. They were always competing with each other. One was going to outdo the other. I know that Husey was the first great technician as a sports broadcaster, and he was the soul of pinpoint honesty. 
I do the work that's given to me to do it as truthfully as I can do it. And if people like it, fine. And sometimes they uh, haven't liked it. You paid Western Union $25 for a service they called Paragraph One. And they had experienced sending operators at each ballpark in the major leagues. And they would send to everybody who subscribed to their service. And it could be one station, it could be a hundred stations, it could be 50 bars, it could be clubs. Whoever wanted to buy the service, all they had to do was tell Western Union, and the whole thing went on uh, Morse code, dots and dashes. And everybody who bought the service had a receiving operator. Well, I didn't know a dot from a dash, and I still don't, I never did want to know. But the receiving operator used to take down, used to put it on a typewriter, and I would stand and look over his shoulder. And it came in a skeleton form, a code, for example, Western Union would send you the weather conditions a half an hour before the game was to start and send you the batting orders. Then the game would start and they would merely send, uh, let's say, Smith up. And then over would come B1L, that's ball one low. S1C, strike one call. And in fact, they didn't even send a call strike or a swinging strike or a foul strike in those days. I was one of the ones that raised so much cane. I said, for goodness sake, tell us what kind of strike it is. In the 1930s, Major League Baseball owners objected to major radio networks broadcasting games. Why? I'll let Jack Brown and Les Tremaine answer. enthusiastic about having its games broadcast. They reasoned that if someone could stay home and hear a game for free, why would they pay to come to a ballpark? Major League Baseball clubs, for example, objected to having their home games broadcast. But there was no objection when their teams played away from their home ballpark. And the Yankees, Giants, and Brooklyn Dodgers had an interclub agreement until 1938, which wouldn't allow any broadcasting of their games except for the openers and the World Series. That was probably why no one saw baseball as a sponsored game. In 1937, the World Series was sustained because of a lack of sponsors. For a while, even the newspapers refused to carry play-by-play descriptions of any sport event. Eventually, of course, they did. The broadcasting of baseball and football continued to be a hot issue as professional club owners, college officials, and broadcasters argued over whether radio reduced or increased the take at the box office. Most club owners insisted that broadcasts reduced park attendance, but a few insisted they increase the public's interest. They were correct because by 1941, a single sponsor was spending more than a million dollars on the broadcasting of minor league games over 90 stations from Albany, New York to San Diego. By then, sponsors weren't the only ones looking for broadcast exclusivity. In 1939, the Mutual Broadcasting System won exclusive rights to broadcast the World Series. That presents the 1939 World Series through the combined facilities of the Mutual Broadcasting System, affiliated stations, and the Canadian Broadcasting Corporations. That 39 World Series featured the three-time defending world champion New York Yankees against the Cincinnati Reds, who were making their first World Series appearance since 1919. The Yankees swept the series four games to zero and outscored the Reds 20 to 8. In 1948, Gordon McClendon founded a U.S. radio network called the Liberty Broadcasting System. The network was mainly in Texas and the Southwest, but did have nine affiliates in Oregon, an outlet in Los Angeles, Seattle, and, as of 1950, WHAV in Haverville, Massachusetts. At one time, it had about 500 radio stations on the line, being second in size only to the mutual broadcasting system. 
McClendon's success led to restrictions on Major League Baseball broadcasts in minor league franchise areas and blackouts within a 75-mile range of Major League cities. It was a disaster for the company, which folded on May 16, 1952. In 1948, during the All-Star break, the Brooklyn Dodgers fired their longtime manager Leo DeRocher, who was immediately signed by the crosstown rival New York Giants. The Giants moved their manager Mel Ott to a front office position. And speaking of managers, how about that managerial shakeup in the East yesterday? Well, Frank, that's something I'm glad to talk about, and it was really a shock to me, and I'm sure it's a shock to a lot of uh, people in baseball all over the country. Nobody even dreamed that Leo DeRocher would be let out as a Brooklyn Dodger and go to the New York Giants. And Mel Ott, who was manager of the New York Giants, went to the office. Well, I want to say something about those two boys. I played against them, and I played with them. They're two great fellows. And just like baseball men all over the country say, when you're going pretty good, why, the manager's always in there. But if you happen to hit a slump and you have a little bad luck, why, they say, the first thing is say, let's fire the manager. So that's exactly why they made that change, and we can see which is going to do the best because Bert Schotten managed the ball club in Brooklyn last year. He's back there now as manager. The New York Giants, the Brooklyn Dodgers have changed managers, and they're practically tied for fourth place, about a half a game separating one another. And by the time the season's over, we'll see which one of the clubs prosperous by the change of those managers. Well, it was certainly, as you say, Diz, a a great shock to the baseball world to see all this take place. Incidentally, the Giants went 41-38 and under DeRocher the rest of the way, while the Dodgers rebounded to finish 49-33, and although both missed the playoffs. In fact, in 1948, the Yankees missed the playoffs as well. It was a rarity that all three New York franchises would be sitting out in October. A New York-based team would make the World Series every year following that year until 1959. And between 1921 and 1964, the Yankees won the World Series 20 times and the American League pennant 29 times in 44 seasons. The dynasty started with Babe Ruth's sale from the Boston Red Sox after the 1919 season. The Babe was 26 at the time. He'd come up as a left-handed pitcher in 1914 and quickly became the best lefty pitcher in the American League. Sports writer Grantland Rice once wrote, The first time I saw Babe Ruth was in the spring of 1919 at Tampa, Florida. I'd been uh, with our troops in France the previous year, so Ruth was news to me. Babe blasted a batting practice pitch clear out of the park into a plowed field. I gauged that hit as about 500 feet. While Ruth hit, I watched, and Ed Barrow, the Red Sox manager, talked. Ruth was our main holdout, said Barrow. He's been signed to a three-year contract. At 24, this fellow can become the greatest single thing that's happened to baseball. Babe, I said, I was watching your swing. You swing like no pitcher I ever saw. With my swing, it's all or nothing at all, replied Babe. I copied it after Joe Jackson's. His is the perfectest. Of all the sluggers spawned by the advent of the lively ball, Babe remains the only one I ever knew who never shortened or choked his grip when the count reached two strikes. He gripped his bat at the very end with the knob of the handle palmed in his right hand. Babe liked plenty of lumber in his war clubs. Many of his bats weighed 42 ounces. That's about a half pound more than the average. That spring, the Red Sox and McGraw's Giants played an exhibition series. I hung around for several games to watch Ruth, being converted from a pitcher to an outfielder, slug and play left field. In the first game, he hit the loftiest shot I ever saw, some six miles over the right field fence. Bill McGeehan, then sports editor of the New York Tribune, who didn't impress easily, wrote... 
The ball sailed so high that when it came down, it was coated with ice. Ruth was also six foot two and 215 pounds in an era where the average player was considerably smaller. He learned his craft in an orphanage in Baltimore. Throughout the course of his legendary career, Babe Ruth hit 342 with 714 home runs, a lifetime on base percentage of 474, and a lifetime slugging percentage of 690, a record that still stands. Bill Stern interviewed the Babe for his March 22, 1946 version of the Bill Stern Sports Newsreel. And now, Bill Stern with his special guest, Babe Ruth. Real fine. Colgate camera close-up of Babe Ruth. Here is the most famous baseball player of all time, the one and only Babe Ruth. Now, if you don't mind, let me switch this around and ask you some questions. Who's going to win the American League pennant? Why, the New York Yanks. Well, Babe, you might be prejudiced, but let's ask you who's going to win the National League pennant. I think the St. Louis Cardinals. Well, Babe, tell me this. What do you think of this new Mexican baseball league? Why, it's mainly a lot of hot air. (laughs) Who's the greatest ball player playing baseball today? Well, I think Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio. Who would you say was, what was the greatest baseball team of all time? I would say the Yanks of 1927, because on that team was Bob Musil, Tony Vazari, Earl Coons, Herb Pennock, and many others, and a good manager named Miller Huggins. And there was another player on that team by the name of Lou Gehrig. Well, I, I hope he has never forgotten past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad break. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. When you look around, wouldn't you consider it privilege to associate yourself with such a fine-looking man as a standing in uniform in this ballpark today. That I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. 
I had an interview with Joe McCarthy the other day. It was his 88th birthday. Of course, he managed the Yankees and the Red Sox after the Cubs. But having managed the Yankees and Red Sox, I had to ask him a question. And frankly, knowing Joe real well, I knew he wasn't going to answer it. But I also knew that the fans would want that question asked. So I asked Joe, I said, Joe, you manage both the Yankees and the Red Sox. Most folks would like to know, in your opinion, who is the greatest, Joe DiMaggio or Ted Williams? And I knew what his answer was going to be. He said, they're both great. <laughs> you know, and, but yet I knew what his actual thoughts were. And it was proven by a poll taken on all the media and with the fans voting coast to coast about three, four years ago. The question was, who is the greatest living ball player, active or inactive? And the winner was Joe DiMaggio. Now, I've been with Ted Williams many times, and, and Ted will tell you, Jiminy Cricket, so I'm not in his league, is a total ball player. DiMaggio will tell you there's no greater classic hitter that I've ever seen than Ted Williams. And it wasn't a mutual admiration society. They were giving you the honest answers. They met it. However, that didn't mean that Joe wasn't a great hitter. Ted could hit well in the clutch, but he had an element of stubbornness to which he would agree. When they put that overshift on him, he knew he was a great hitter, and he just wanted to show him he could beat it. You just couldn't. When you put everybody over on one side and left field is wide open, there's no third baseman, all you got to do is bunt the ball down there, and you walk to first base, you got a base hit. <laughs> and he could have done that because he could control the bat, being yeah. the greatest hitter. He's the last hitter ever to hit over 400 in the major leagues. I'm taking nothing away from Ted. I just mean it was just on a 3-2 pitch, eighth inning, ninth inning, winning run on second base. If the pitch was three inches outside or four inches, Ted would take it, take a walk. His theory being if they start making you bite at pitches a little bit outside the plate, the next time it's going to be a little further and a little further until the first thing you know is making you bite at pitches a foot outside the plate or something like that. DiMaggio's philosophy was – in the same situation, the count of three and two, if the pitch was a little outside the plate, as long as I could see the ball, meaning as long as, as it wasn't, he could uh, see it well enough to realize he could get the bat on the ball, he's swinging. Because he said, I'm not being paid fourth to walk. By the same token, Joe didn't always get a hit by swinging at those kind of pitches. That's right. Lou Gehrig's farewell speech was broadcast on Independence Day 1939. He had been diagnosed with amyotropic lateral sclerosis, a disease that now bears his name. Gehrig would pass away in 1941 at the age of 39. The same year Gehrig retired, 1939, Mel Allen, whom you just heard, became the New York Yankees radio announcer. After the era of Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, the Yankees became Joe DiMaggio's team, while the rival Boston Red Sox were led by Ted Williams. Countless fans argued back and forth about who was the better ball player. Norman Corwin riffed on this rivalry during his production of Between Americans for the Screen Guild Theater, which aired on the evening of December 7, 1941, on CBS. Yeah, but look! The Yanks are a bunch of old men and cripples. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. won't last, I tell you, they yeah. won't last! 
Well, it gets good and hot around the middle of July. Yeah. Well, up double headers begin piling up. What are you talking? Listen, the mayor's just having the best season he ever had. Ah. He's an old man, huh? Keller hitting a dozen homers. Ah. I'd like to be a cripple like that. New home run record for the club. Won't last, huh? Who's the Red Sox got as good as the mayor's? Name one guy. Name one. I'll name two. Ted Williams. Well, a good hitter. No getting away from that. But you say better than the mayor? Wait a minute. You say... During the war, many stars like Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams were drafted. They both missed the 1943, 44, and 45 seasons due to World War II. When the war ended, Brooklyn Dodgers radio announcer Red Barber was named the director of sports for the Columbia Broadcasting System. Just a year later, on August 12, 1947, Red Barber's guest was Babe Ruth, who was now dying of throat cancer after years of being a heavy cigar smoker. Here now is Red Barber. Hello, everybody. Babe Ruth is here as our series of programs on how to play baseball continues. Well, so Babe Ruth, uh, let's go to work on how to play the outfield. And first of all, how's the throat? Well, I tell you, Red, it's not so good. And a lot of people put me down as an outfielder, yes. I play the outfield. And as much as I can tell the young boys how to play the outfield, has known who the batter is in the first place. Mm-hmm. You must know if the batter's fast or not. Second, you must judge the speed of the runner going from first to second or from second to third or all around the bases. Then, if a man is on first base, especially a slow man, and you get a fast man up there hitting next, and he happens to hit a ball to right field, say, for instance, which I was playing, mm-hmm. You can always catch that fella, not always. But if you watch that slow fella at second base, you know if you got a good arm, he will not go. And a lot of times that man is supposed to be fast who hit the ball to right field. If you got your head up, you can throw that ball to first base and catch him. I'd say seven out of ten times, which I have done. In other words, a lot of times, babe, when a batter gets a little overconfident or callous and takes that big turnaround first, the right fielder, uh, if he can throw accurately and uh, with strength, can pick him out off first base. Yeah, if he's got his head up, he can pick that fellow. I've seen Dixie Walker even knew it over in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. It's a great play, and it's a nice play to watch. Yes, it certainly is. And then uh, what would you say is the next point? Well, the fellow's got to keep his head up to the extent, I would say... If a ball is hit to an outfielder, the first thing he's got to think of, as I said before, who the runner is, where the plane, where he hits, left to right field, and so forth. Then, if the ball is hit over his head, never back up on a ball. Always run to a spot where you think the ball is coming down. Never back up. Then if you run back to the spot where you think the ball is coming down... You will be within two or three feet anyhow. And then, if the ball is out of your reach, then you know it cannot be caught. Mm-hmm. Well, as I told you, Babe Ruth is very busy. He's got another busy night tomorrow at the polo ground because the Babe is honorary chairman of the Journal American Hearst Sandlot baseball game in which 23 youngsters from 12 American cities will meet the best of New York's Sandlot players. Babe Ruth would pass away just a little over a year later, on August 16, 1948. His body would lay in state at Yankee Stadium for fans and mourners to pay their last respects. His baseball legacy is eternal.
Well, of course, Mel, we all remember you from those golden days with the Yankees. Now, how many years did you actually do the Yankee broadcast? What year to what year? Well, I would say approximately 23 years, 39 through 43, and I went in the service at the end of the 43 season, and then came out in 46 and stayed with them through 64. The reason a lot of people would jump on me, trying to be as candid as I can, didn't. As will often happen, those who do criticize you, whether it be someone in a letter or somebody writing a column for a newspaper or somebody on the air, any critic, will be magnified because you were with a dynasty. Because from 46 through 64, the Yankees only lost the pennant in 46, in 48, in 54, and in 59. <laughs> so in those 19 years, they only lost the pennant four times, so they won 15 times. <laughs> and there was a stretch in there where they won five consecutive pennants and five consecutive world titles. Then they had another stretch where they won four pennants in a row. Then they had a second stretch in that series where they won five pennants in a row again, although they didn't win. They won something like three out of the five world titles. So... That was a tremendous dynasty, and it just sort of kept building up, and even people sitting on the fence got tired of one team winning, you know, or that type of thing. Or those who were against the Yankees got further against them. <laughs> but instead of getting angry at the guys who did it, they got mad at me because I was broadcasting. I was the nearest person they could get to as far as the team is concerned. I had nothing to do with them uh, winning. I didn't get one walk or one base hit or That's score true. one run or anything else. Somebody got a little more excited, but I had nothing to do with them winning or losing for that. That's concerned. Between 1923 and 1957, New York City had three professional stadiums. The Polo Grounds, located in Harlem and home to the New York Giants. Ebbets Field, home to the Brooklyn Dodgers in Flatbush, and Yankee Stadium in the South Bronx, home to the New York Yankees. All three were accessible by public transportation, and all had their legions of fans. The Giants fans were usually the oldest. The team had been in operation since 1883 and had been winning league championships since 1888. Brooklyn joined the National League in 1890, and the Yankees moved to New York from Baltimore in 1903. While both the Yankees and Giants had boasted multiple world championships, the Brooklyn Dodgers were, by 1950, 0-5 in their trips to the World Series. 1951 seemed like the season it would all finally come together in Flatbush. The Dodgers had a serious contender, led by offensive stars catcher Roy Campanella, first baseman Gil Hodges, outfielder Duke Snyder, and the now second baseman, Jackie Robinson. By the dog days of summer, Brooklyn had amassed a record of 70 wins and only 36 losses. On August 11, 1951, the Giants trailed the Brooklyn Dodgers in the standings by 13 games. Then, former Dodgers manager and now Giants manager Leo DeRocher installed coach Herman Franks in the manager's office of the Giants clubhouse which was beyond center field in the polo grounds to steal opposing catcher's signals. Franks would look through a telescope and relay the sign through an electrical buzzer system to the Giants' bullpen in deep right field, from where the sign would be flashed to the Giants' hitters. The Giants then astonishingly went 37-7 down the stretch 
including going 20-3 at home in the polo grounds. They were able to force a tie with the Dodgers in the standings. A best-of-three playoff series was announced to decide the winner of the pennant. At Ebbets Field in Game 1, Giants pitcher Jim Hearn outdueled Dodgers starter Ralph Branca, and the Giants won 3-1 behind solo homers from Andy Pafko, Bobby Thompson, and Monty Irvin. The second game played at the Polo Grounds was a rout, but in favor of Brooklyn. They won 10-0. Jackie Robinson had three hits, including a home run, and drove in three runs. And Dodgers starter Clem Labine went the distance. October 3, 1951, Game 3. The final game was played before 34,320 at the Polo Grounds. It was a tight, tense affair. Brooklyn struck first when Jackie Robinson had an RBI single in the first inning. The game remained that way until the bottom of the seventh, when Bobby Thompson tied the game with a sacrifice fly to center field. In the top of the eighth, the very next half inning, the Dodgers scored three runs to take a 4-1 lead. Jackie Robinson was once again in the middle of the action, scoring the fourth run. With Dodgers pitcher Don Newcomb dealing, the game seemed all but over. Then in the bottom of the ninth, New York Giants shortstop Alvin Dark led off with a single. Next man Don Mueller followed with a single of his own, and suddenly the Giants had the tying run at the plate. Don Newcomb got the next man Monty Irvin to pop out, and some breathe a sigh of relief. But next man up, Whitey Lockman got a line drive double to left field, making the game 4-3 and chasing Don Newcomb. Brooklyn Dodgers manager Chuck Dressen brought in Ralph Branca, who had pitched well in a losing effort in game one. That year, Branca had been a jack of all trades. The 25-year-old had started 27 games, but also pitched 15 times in relief and threw over 200 innings. He was a man comfortable in almost any situation on the mound. But the Giants were still stealing signs from center field. Bobby Thompson was the Giants batter to come to the plate. With the count, no balls and one strike, Ralph Branca threw a pitch that got too much of home plate. And Bobby Thompson swung. Giants were advancing to the World Series to face the Yankees, and Brooklyn's heartache would have to last at least another winter. Their Dodgers were still without a World Series title. Mary, no! God, let's let go! go. Mm, 
I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, no! Are you attracted to the dark, fascinated by the dramatic, with a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. Play ball! Play ball with Babe Ruth! Play ball with the Baseball-themed broadcasts on radio weren't just regulated to live games and recaps. There were also serialized dramas, like The Adventures of Babe Ruth. These shows were produced in 1934 on the NBC Blue Network with sponsorship by Quaker Oats. In the original program, Ruth played himself. Later, these scripts were reproduced and sponsored by the Navy. It told in-depth, fully dramatized episodes from Babe Ruth's career, giving kids a sense of the real man there in the dugout and on the field. But before you meet Eddie, I know you'll be interested in This episode entitled There Are No Bad Kids was produced in New York and originally aired on November 1949. Sports writer Grantlin Rice hosted a program telling stories of the days of baseball yore. Three for this team, but four if you count the practice game. Yeah, that's right. Four altogether. Hey, you, kid. Oh, me? Yeah. Come over here. I want to talk to you. What do you want, mister? That was a nice game you pitched, kid. Not bad. Oh, you think you're good, huh? Why should I run myself down? What's your name? John McGraw. Live here in Truxton? Yeah, I do. McGraw, I'm Steve Bogan. I manage the East Homer Club. Oh. Kid, how would you like to pitch for us next Sunday? What's in it? What's in it? I thought you'd just like to play ball. I do, but you charge admissions, don't you? Yeah, but you're just a kid. I'm giving you an opportunity. We got one of the classiest little clubs in New York State, you know. Well, it seems like you made a special trip over here to Truxton just to see me. Why... <laughs> All right, kid, you win. You come over and pitch for us, and I'll give you a dollar. How's that? I'll pitch for two dollars. Two dollars? Hey, who do you think you are? John McGraw. And Red Barber hosted a program for CBS where he interviewed players and helped tell their origin story in a This Is Your Life format. Join a fast-moving tour of that wonderland of heroes, hullabaloo, and high finance known as baseball. But now, here is your guide, Columbia's director of sports, Red Barber. Hello, everybody. This is the old redhead. We're taking the great dream of every American youngster, the dream of playing ball in the big leagues. And we're going to watch step by step as that dream comes true for at least one of them, one typical American kid. Finding him wasn't easy. We sifted through the roster of every big league club, ran through hundreds of names and mountains of statistics, until one day we turned the page, and there he was. 
Reese Harold H., shortstop, Brooklyn Club. Bats right, throws right. Height 5'10", weight 170. Born July 23rd, 1919, residence, Louisville, Kentucky. those cold statistics, we found a warm human story. We found Pee Wee Reese, a star and a symbol. His story might well have been yours. It still may be your kids. It's the way one American boy worked to make his great dream come true. Well, Pee Wee, where would you say ball players come from? Oh, no special place, Red. Anywhere. You mean uh, they even born like uh, anybody else and not just hatched out on a farm? That's right, Red. Well, where were you born, Pee Wee? In Kentucky. Eckman, Kentucky. That's near Louisville, Red. And I don't suppose, young man, that you remember the circumstances. Uh, no, sir, I don't. I suppose I'm the only one who does. Pee Wee Reese was a ten-time All-Star that had fought in World War II during four years of his prime. He was considered the best defensive shortstop in baseball. He would play in 44 World Series games spread across seven seasons during his career and was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1984. In 1954, it took a truly historic season to dethrone the Yankees, who were five-time defending world champions. Although they won 103 games, the Cleveland Indians won an American League record 111. Their hitting was led by center fielder Larry Doby, the first African-American player in the American League, third baseman Al Rosen, and midseason acquisition slugger Vic Wirtz. Their pitching staff was anchored by early win Bob Lemon and an aging and still effective Bob Feller. In the National League, the pennant winners were the underdog New York Giants, who won 97 games, finishing five games ahead of the Brooklyn Dodgers. That year, the Giants finished second in National League attendance, drawing over 1.1 million fans to the polo grounds. The ballpark had a quirk. It was nicknamed the bathtub because its shape resembled one. It was only 279 feet from home plate to the foul pole down the left field line and 258 feet down the right field line. Center field, however, was 483 feet away. It was built in a hollow, overlooking Coogan's Bluff near the western shore of the Harlem River in the Washington Heights neighborhood of Upper Manhattan. A Polo Grounds ballpark had been on the site since 1890 with the current steel construction from June of 1911. Giants owner Horace Stoneham began to wonder if he couldn't draw more fans and make more money elsewhere. In the eighth inning of Game 1 of the 1954 World Series, the score was tied at two. Cleveland's Al Rosen and Larry Doby had both reached base on Giants pitcher Sal the Barber Magley. Giants manager Leo DeRocher made a pitching change. Wirtz hit a ball to deep center field where New York Giants superstar center fielder Willie Mays was playing. Later nicknamed The Catch, it changed the entire complexion of the series. The Giants would go on to sweep the Indians to claim the 1954 title. It would be their last championship in New York.
Unfortunately, the economic model of baseball was changing by the 1950s as radio and now television began to seep deeper and deeper into local markets. As great as the Yankees were, their dominance over the game created a league problem. Major League cities began to struggle to support two teams. After the 1952 season, the National League's Boston Braves, unable to compete with the Crosstown Red Sox, moved to Milwaukee and won the World Series within five years. The American League St. Louis Browns, mired in the second division in every non-World War II season since 1929, moved to Baltimore after the 53 season and became the Orioles, where they won six American League pennants in their first 30 years. The next year, the American League's Philadelphia Athletics moved to Kansas City, where they would remain until moving again to Oakland in 1968. Although fans of every other team loved to hate the Yankees, and everyone wanted to beat them, the franchise was a lightning rod for celebrities and other heroes. Throughout the years, Mel Allen had many interesting guests in the booth, like Bing Crosby. Well, any time a left-hander can get a base hit off a left-handed pitcher, it's quite an accomplishment at that. I guess Ted hits any kind of pitch. And here's the first pitch to him. It's called strike. It's two outs. There's men on first and third, and Joe Page is pitching to Ted Williams in the first half of the sixth inning. The Red Sox leading. The team the Yankees often defeated in the World Series was the Brooklyn Dodgers, who lost to the Yankees in 1941, 1947, 1949, 1952, and 1953, before finally defeating the hated Bronx Bombers in seven games in 1955. For the first time, Brooklyn was a world champion. Later, retired Hall of Fame player and then broadcaster Frankie Frisch, the Fordham Flash, was inside the Brooklyn Dodgers clubhouse speaking to the victorious team. Well, Frank, we're very proud of him, and I'm delighted for all our wonderful Brooklyn fans in Brooklyn, Long Island, New Jersey, all over, that at long last we've brought this world championship to Brooklyn. And without Buzzy and Fresco in the front office and their wonderful staffs, Walter Austin and his great coaches and these fine players, Frank, it couldn't have been done. But I'm mighty God proud of the whole bunch of them. Well, you should be. They did a wonderful job. And congratulations. Come on, Roy. Hands, Roy Campanella. Hi, Frankie. Hey. Oh. You get a hit today? Yeah, I got a little double there. I saw you hit one down that left field line. You got that bat right into that ball, and it felt pretty good, didn't it? But Frank, it's tough to see in this ballpark. Don't help me. Hey, Padres saw pretty good. Tell us something about now. You you're the fellow that caught Johnny Padres. Believe it or not, Frankie, uh, every pitch I called Phil, he threw. Except the last pitch, I wanted him to throw a fastball. He shipped me off. He said he wanted to throw a change. So he threw the change and got it out. Yeah, but I mean, did. he had such fine control. He had everything. Everything. He looked like a guy that's been catching Two years after the Dodgers won the World Series in 1955, Owner Walter O'Malley was in a dispute with New York City Parks Commissioner Robert Moses. Ebbets Field, opened since 1913, was falling apart. The on-field success of the Dodgers and the population explosion in Brooklyn 
had long rendered Brooklyn's Cathedral of Baseball too small. The 1957 seating capacity was a tiny 32,000. O'Malley wanted to build a stadium at the intersection of Flatbush Avenue and Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. Robert Moses wanted O'Malley to move the team to Flushing Meadows Corona Park in Queens. O'Malley refused, stating that they were the Brooklyn Dodgers, not the Queens Dodgers. Moses refused to grant O'Malley the rights to build on the land. O'Malley threatened to move the Dodgers 3,000 miles away to Los Angeles if Moses didn't grant the land at Flatbush and Atlantic Avenues. Moses refused. O'Malley then helped convince Giants owner Horace Stoneham, who was in a similar situation with Moses and the dilapidated polo grounds in Harlem, to do the same. After the 1957 season, the Brooklyn Dodgers became the Los Angeles Dodgers and the New York Giants became the San Francisco Giants. The intersection of Flatbush Avenue and Atlantic Avenue is today occupied by the Barclays Center, home of the NBA's Brooklyn Nets and the NHL's New York Islanders, while Flushing Meadows was home to Major League Baseball's New York Mets at Shea Stadium between 1964 and 2008 and at Citi Field since 2009. But unfortunately, that's still not the end of the story. On January 28, 1958, Dodger star catcher Roy Campanella was driving home to Glen Cove, New York with his rented 1957 Chevrolet sedan when he hit a patch of ice on an S-curve on DeSaurus Lane near Apple Tree Lane in Glen Cove. His car skidded into a telephone pole and overturned, breaking Campanella's neck. Campanella's career was instantly over as he was required to use a wheelchair for the rest of his life. He never made the trip to Los Angeles. As America moved west after World War II, turning farms into suburbs and western towns into cities, the desire to expand the amount of teams in each league was growing. Finally, in 1961, in order to block the upstart Continental League from gaining traction, Major League Baseball expanded. When the Washington Senators moved to Minneapolis before the 1961 season to become the Twins, Washington received a new Senators franchise. In Los Angeles, after the success of the Dodgers, the American League expanded to include the Los Angeles Angels, upping the American League to 10 teams. The following year, the National League added two new teams, the Colt 45s, who in 1964 changed their name to the Astros, and the New York Metropolitans, colloquially known as the Mets. One by one, old ballparks were being torn down Ebbets Field in 1960, the Polo Grounds in 1964. Both sites are now occupied by housing projects. New, multi-purpose stadiums were built to accommodate both football and baseball. Like with baseball, 
how America got its entertainment was also changing. By 1960, scripted radio dramas were dying out as shows either moved to television or were canceled. Although baseball would still be broadcast on radio, now fans could tune into television for their favorite games. A new generation of sportscasters emerged, like former Yankee shortstop Phil Rizzuto. When I got the job, what I liked about it, I never liked to do anything on tape. And in those days, we did everything live. And I'd say, oh, the first 12 years, every show was live. And I loved that because I like challenges and, and you had to be right on time and all the cues had to be right. And, you, you, know, you know, if you're fluffed, you had to just keep right on going. I got a big break in two ways with Lowell Thomas. Lowell Thomas kind of liked me and uh, was like a father to me and taught me so much about broadcasting. He got me to um, enunciate a little more clearly. Being from Brooklyn, uh, a lot of people didn't quite understand what I was saying. And he did it in such a way that it didn't upset me or anything bother me. It was constructive criticism. Plus the fact that I followed Lowell Thomas in about the first 10 years and a lot of people just wouldn't turn you know how people are they got the dial on that one station they want and so i would get the overflow from lowell's broadcasts and it helped me tremendously and he helped me tremendously in my career it's sports time with phil rizzuto hi everybody over the years at least during my time any list of the most respected college football coaches would include frank Leahy, red blake and bud wilkinson in the professional ranks there are two who come to mind George Hallis of the Chicago Bears and Paul Brown of Cleveland. The fact that Brown has been dropped as head coach of the organization he hatched from a chick into a full-blown eagle in a very short time following the war and kept it at peak efficiency for so long has nothing to do with the current case. Rizzuto would call Roger Maris's record-breaking 61st home run at Yankee Stadium on October 1st, 1961. That's all he'll have to try and get number 61 on the year. The windup. The pitch, low ball two. That one was in the dirt. And the boons get louder. Two balls, no strikes on Roger Maris. Here's the windup. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Although Rizzuto had a very respectable playing career, even winning the 1950 American League MVP award, his work as a Yankees announcer for over 40 years helped vote him to the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame in 1994 for his total body of work. In 1956, while the Dodgers were still in Brooklyn, their aging superstar Jackie Robinson was putting the finishing touches on his remarkable career. That December 13th, the Dodgers traded Robinson to the New York Giants for Dick Littlefield and $30,000. Jackie Robinson refused to report to his new team, instead retiring. Within a few years, he was hosting his own syndicated radio show called Jackie Robinson's Radio Shots. In 1960, he interviewed perhaps the most famous African-American pitcher in history, Satchel Paige. Leroy Satchel Paige, one of the greatest pitchers of all times. In the twilight of his fabulous career, Satch came to the majors, and in my humble opinion, 
If Satchel Paige had come to the majors in his prime, he would have rewritten all of the record books. Satchel, I read quite frequently about Negro baseball. They say that Negro baseball players have played as many as four baseball games in one day. Has this ever happened to you? Yes, it has, Jackie. We used to play in the morning, then in the evening, in the twilight, then a night game. Did you ever have to pitch more than one game on any one given day? Yeah, I pitched in doubleheaders. Sometimes I pitched the first two. Sats, you pitched in both the American National League? Yes, I did. Uh -huh. Is there a difference in the hitters in these leagues, or do you have to pitch in the American League the same way as you did in the National League? I pitched the same way, Jack. I just pitch out to every man. I stay on the outside corner until all battles low, around mm -hmm. the knees, make them reach for the ball. Is there a particular story that stands out in your mind, a personal triumph for Satchel Paige, which would illustrate the kind of pitcher that everyone knows you to be? Yes. When I, I was given a try to go nine innings when I was with Cleveland in Chicago, and they sent Bob Feller and Bob Lemons to the bullpen to come get me if I didn't go the route. Mm -hmm. And I went the route, and I shut Chicago out again after I was in Chicago. The next day, Bob Feller pitched, I went and got him. Next day, Lemon pitched, and I went and got him. <laughs> Three days in a row, huh? Yeah. Well, that's the kind of arm. How is this your arm stood up? Is it a certain kind of training that you did? No, Jack, I stays in condition when I first get into it. You know, when we first go out yeah. to train, we, well, I'll never get out of condition. Mm -hmm. Now, I really think that sometimes we have too many pitchers like in the big league, and they just don't have a chance to pitch, and that's when they go stale. Uh -huh. But see, I have to be on the diamond every day. Sats, your real name is Leroy, right? That's right. How did you happen to get the name of Satchel? Jack, when I was a kid, I had a suitcase, and I used to have the balls and bats and mitts and everything belong to me. And if they didn't let me play where I wanna, I would take my suitcase and go home. <laughs> it's quite interesting. It's like years ago when we used to play out in California. It was the same thing. Kids do it all the time, and uh, it's another interesting story and another sidelight on Satchel Page. We played a ball game in Kansas City, Satch. You were driving your car. We left Kansas City Sunday night, rode on that bus from Sunday night until Tuesday morning, got into Philadelphia, played a twi-night doubleheader. How is it that you were able to perform day in and day out, living under the conditions that you were? Well, Jack, it's the only thing I can see that at, when we was back playing like that, we used to ride with our knees up under our chin and four and five hundred miles, and we couldn't eat correctly at times, and then we'd get out and didn't have time to stretch and jump on maybe one of the best clubs in Philly, and it'd be a one or two nothing game, and we'd done that for years, not only just one year. That's the way we did until you got in the majors. Mm -hmm. What is the most important thing to for a man to be successful? I remember uh, the great stories that they told about Satchel Page used to walk three men just to get a Josh Gibson to challenge the greatest hitter, I think, that baseball has produced. This guy uh, was fantastic, in my opinion. Uh, what was this, the challenge? Is it just a personal thing between you and Josh? Yes, we was playing in Puerto Rico, and uh, I was playing against Josh. I was playing with Sinclair, and he's playing with St. Ferguson. I'd beat him that day, and he told me one of these days uh, his family was going to be at the baseball park in Gus Greenlee, and he named the whole lot of the big crowd people was in Pittsburgh, and that he was going to hit me over the fence. And so I got with the Kansas City Monarchs, and he still was with the Grays. And so we come up there to play him, and it was two out. So I, I walked the bases to get to Josh. Then I walked up and told him, I said, here's the chance. <laughs> what happened? I threw him three balls. I threw him two fastballs and one curveball. And he sat down, huh? Yeah. Well, that's the kind of arm. How is it that uh, uh, your arm 
uh, is able to stand up under these pressures. And you pitched, because you were the drawing card in, in the Negro Leagues, you would go in and pitch two or three, four innings every day, uh, or else the people wouldn't come out. How is this your arm stood up? Do you diet? I see. Does that help you stay in diet, or can you eat anything you want, or are you picky with your food? Well, I got to be picky with it because I have a gastric stomach. I've been at it. Oh, what, what do you do? I've got a stomach that's causing me some trouble. <laughs> Maybe I can get an idea of what I can do for mine. Well, I started taking goat milk, and it helped me a lot. Goat milk? Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, let's just see. <laughs> Maybe I'll tell my wife about this. Maybe she'll bring me some goat milk and see if that'll help my stomach. That's thanks a lot for being with us, and good luck with your career. And you're welcome. And that just about does it for now, fans. See you soon. Jackie Robinson was elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 1962 in his first year of eligibility. His unquestionable talent thankfully challenged America's basis for segregation, which then was affecting many aspects of American life. He influenced the culture of, and contributed significantly to, the civil rights movement. Robinson was also the first African-American television analyst in Major League Baseball history, and the first African-American vice president for an American corporation, chock full of nuts. In 1972, at the second game of the World Series between the Oakland Athletics and the Cincinnati Reds at Cincinnati's Riverfront Stadium, Jackie Robinson was invited to throw out the first pitch ceremonially in honor of his 25 years of service to Major League Baseball. He used the opportunity to make one last statement to the baseball establishment. Jackie Robinson is something special. Thank you very much, Commissioner. I'm extremely proud and pleased to be here this afternoon, but must admit I'm going to be tremendously more pleased and more proud when I look at that third base coaching line one day and see a black face managing in baseball. Thank you very much. It would be Jackie Robinson's last public appearance. Complications from heart disease and diabetes weakened Robinson and made him almost blind by middle age. Some would also say that the years of pressure to be Jackie Robinson, a leader and voice for strength, empowerment, and reason, contributed to his decline. On October 24, 1972, nine days after his appearance at the World Series, Robinson died of a heart attack at his home. He was just 53 years old. Robinson's funeral service on October 27, 1972, at Manhattan's Riverside Church attracted 2,500 mourners. Many of his former teammates and other famous baseball players served as pallbearers, and Reverend Jesse Jackson gave the eulogy. Lord's arms of protection enabled him to go through dangers seen and unseen, and he had the capacity to wear glory with grace. Jackie's body was a temple of God, an instrument of peace. We'd watch him disappear into nothingness and stand back as spectators and watched suffering from afar. The mercy of God intercepted this process to permitted him to steal away home where referee is out of place all of the supreme judge of the universe and you take a good look 
you will find the first baseball game. It says Eve stole first and Adam second. Solomon umpired the game. Rebecca went to the well with the pitcher. On April 15, 1997, the 50th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's first game at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn, Major League Baseball unanimously retired Robinson's 42 across the league. He is the only man to receive such an honor. This coming April 15th is the 71st anniversary of his entrance into the American lexicon. And this coming October, the World Series will be played for the 114th time. Although in many ways baseball is a game of loss, our heroes fail seven times out of ten, and they fall to the same diseases and insecurities that affect the entire human condition. Each spring is living proof that hope is eternal. In 2018, new heroes will emerge, and future baseball heroes, and perhaps heroines, will be born. We pass our love of the game down to our children and our grandchildren, and men like Babe Ruth and Jackie Robinson live on forever in our hearts, perhaps because they exemplify what a person can do if he or she sets his mind to it. Age, race, religion, and family history are not what one should be governed by, but rather the size of one's heart and the content of one's character. And speaking of age not being something to hold one back. There was indeed a very definite effort to stop the film during shooting by those elements in the studio who were attempting to seize power because in those days, studio politics, particularly RKO and indeed many of the big studios in Hollywood were very much like Central American republics. And there were revolutions and counter-revolutions and every sort of palace intrigue and there was a big effort to overthrow the then head of the studio who was taken to be out of his mind because he'd given me this contract which made the making of these films possible mm. and stopping me or proving my incompetence would have won their case one month from today may 1st 2018 on breaking walls as radio grows into an American institution in the 1930s, one man, then dubbed the Boy Wonder, takes center stage not once, not twice, but three times in a four-year period, and all by the age of 26. The interviews featured in today's episode with baseball luminaries were courtesy of Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran, for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio, courtesy of Westinghouse, CBS, and Les Tremaine and Jack Brown for their wonderful 1986 documentary, Please Stand By, A History of Radio. The reading material used in today's episode was the Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio by John Dunning and countless reference websites for the history of baseball. It's a game I grew up playing, and although I stopped playing competitively after high school, my love of baseball has never waned. It was an honor to present these stories and recollections to you today. 
The music featured in today's episode was Did You See Jackie Robinson Hit That Ball? by Woodrow Buddy Johnson and Count Basie, Swing Into Spring by Betty Goodman, There Used To Be A Ballpark by Frank Sinatra, and The First Baseball Game by Nat King Cole. I'd like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman, three old-time radio enthusiasts who host their own program through the Yesterday USA Radio Network, which you can visit at yesterdayusa.com. They put me in touch with many Golden Age enthusiasts and given me access to a lot of reading material and audio material as well. They and I, as well, belong to the Old Time Radio Researchers Group, whose comprehensive library of old-time radio programs can be found at otrrlibrary.org. And they also have a Facebook group, which you can find by searching for the same on Facebook. Most of the baseball radio shows and game clips which were featured today can be found at that library or at oldtimeradiodownloads.com. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society and 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Both podcasts can easily be found on iTunes, and I highly recommend them both. As you may have noticed... Today's episode wasn't a comprehensive history on baseball. If you're looking for one, please watch Ken Burns' 10-part documentary called Baseball. It's free to stream for Amazon Prime members. And if you're in New York City, check out the Fireside Mystery Theater. They produce new-time audio dramas live at the Slipper Room at 167 Orchard Street on the Lower East Side each month. For more information on their next show, go to firesidemysterytheater.com or check out the Facebook page. And if you're not in New York City, worry not. You can subscribe to their podcasts, which are live recordings of the audio dramas enacted each month on iTunes, on Stitcher, and on Audio Boom. And you can find Breaking Walls everywhere you get your podcasts or through thewallbreakers.com. And check us out on Patreon. If you subscribe on Patreon, pledge at least $1 per month and you'll get access to all kinds of bonus content and other goodies as well. As I mentioned a few moments ago, I'm currently scheduling the next episode of Breaking Walls, number 79, for May 1st. Scaling back to one episode per month will give me additional time to research and find larger distribution and marketing. If anyone has any thoughts on the pros and cons of switching to one show per month, I'm all ears. Please reach out to me at jamesatthewallbreakers.com. I'd like to hear your insight and we could have a discussion on the same. So until that time, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode number 78. Happy Easter, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.